Well, good evening. Thought we'd start tonight with a little audience participation. So, by a show of hands, how many think this is a weird church? Come on, be honest. It is a little bit of a strange church, in a good way, okay? Oceanside is. Um, It's not like a lot of other churches. Our lead elder couple is gone traveling for months uh, out of the school, out of the year. Uh, We don't own a proper church building, so we partner with the Christian school here. Um, We have a full-time media guy on staff. That's kind of weird. We started a Bible school in a renovated scout hall. Uh, when a guy wears a tie on Sunday, he stands out. So, you know, I like that part. Uh, and hey, you get to drink coffee in church. So this is a different kind of church. You know, when we started, my wife and I at Oceanside 13 years ago, our families on both sides were a little bit afraid that we joined a cult. You know, it was like they were going to hire the guys that they take you to Georgia and deprogram you, you know. And, and my dad was like, if they serve Kool-Aid, don't drink anything. You know, so I mean, they were kind of concerned about this whole strange church that we were a part of. But at the heart of the matter is that Oceanside was planted and is being led as an outward-focused church. An outward-focused church is a little bit different than what's normal for a lot of churches in North America. Um, it's countercultural. To be an outward-focused church goes against kind of the me-first generation, against the thinking that, you know, I'm going to shop around and find the church that I like and that meets my needs and meets my kids' needs. It's a different way of thinking about an outward kind of a focus, and it makes this church different, a different kind of church, and it feels a little strange at first. It was an adjustment for us, and just this morning I was talking to people that are new, and they're like, we don't quite get all this, and so, you know, it, it is different. I don't know, uh, those of you that know me, I, I like to follow the latest tech trends. And one of the big things now is facial recognition software on your phones. Anybody have a phone that's smart enough to recognize your face here tonight? Anybody got one of those? Yeah, you're going to see that more and more probably. But you know what? I'm not sure I want a phone with fake facial recognition. Because if I had a bad night, you know, and I'm not feeling that great, and I'm up in the morning and the f- alarm clock goes off, and the first thing I do is pick up my phone to see what time it is, I don't want it saying... You're not, Mark. You know, I don't know if I want to know that whole thing about facial recognition. But if we had facial recognition for churches, what would an outward-focused church look like? What would be the the characteristics or the fingerprints of an outward-focused church? I want to talk about some of those distinctives tonight. The first thing I want to be able to talk about is this. Outward-focused churches send out their most experienced leaders. Now that might sound kind of strange and obvious that they would send out their most experienced leaders, but that's actually not the norm for North American churches. If you think about it, who do most churches go send out to missions work or to go do things in hot places or places with mosquitoes or whatever? Who do they send out? They usually send out the newbies, right? The young ones and the dumb ones, right? Hey, yeah, you go over there where it's 43 degrees. You go over there where they have all these diseases, right? We'll, we'll raise money and support you. And, and the old timers, the ones who are, you know, are experienced, they, they keep their reserve spot in front of the door, you know, the staff entrance parking. And it's kind of the, the way that the church has come. Um, think about our own life. We were young and dumb. We were the newbies and, uh, 
between our third and fourth year of seminary, and we just thought, you know, China is a big country. A quarter of the world's population is there. We should just like go over there for a summer and like save that country, you know. So, so we raised money as a couple to go to China for a summer, you know, and we, I, you know, all th- two thirds, th- three quarters of the way through seminary, you know, I know all the answers and none of the questions, and we go to China and we got connected with the underground church uh, and did some very secret agent brother Andrew, if you're old enough to remember who that guy was, kinds of things, you know. Uh, But what I realized was, in talking with the people in the underground church in China at that time was, what qualified you to be a church planter was you'd been in prison at least two years for your faith. So right away I realized, my goodness, I don't have anything to say to these people. They have a lot to say to me. So why is it that we send out our young bucks, people like that? Why aren't we sending out our most experienced, our most gifted people? Well, that's a difference between the outward-focused church. The outward-focused church sends its most experienced leaders. The term we use here at Oceanside is we call it the apostolic or an apostolic ministry. And this is a biblical term. Apostle is a word that's gotten misused. It comes with a lot of baggage, unfortunately. There's people that call themselves Apostle Mark and they have business cards and want to go around and speak and write books. And But that's an aberration from what the Word of God says. Because when we look at the Word of God, Paul, for instance, says always Paul and Apostle. Never Apostle Paul. It's not his identity. It's, it was his calling and what Jesus had called him to be. So we're seeing a lot of weird stuff around the apostle and the whole apostolic thing. But we've got to get back to the word of God and realize that it's something that God has set up. And apostle, all it really means is sent one. If you just cut it down to its most basic meaning, it means someone who's sent. In John thirteen sixteen, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. That word messenger in the original language is the exact same word that we also translate apostle in other places in the New Testament. So we can take away the mystery about this whole apostolic, woo, creepy, weird thing, and just begin to say, it just means someone who's sent out. It means someone who's a messenger. Now this apostolic thing is hard to explain. You know, our families didn't really get it. Try going to seminary, you know, and, exp- and they all go around the room the first day. Oh, what denomination are you from? You know, and they're going around the circle and I'm just dreading. Okay, here, they're coming to me, you know. Well, Mark, what denomination are you from? Well, it's kind of a, you know, uh, well, it, it started in Africa and, you know, it's apostolic. And everybody goes, oh, dude, apostolic. Well, there's a hatch that opens in the floor. You go down, right? People are nervous about apostolic, but we don't need to be nervous about the apostolic because it's a biblical term. I want to be able to talk about that a little bit more. And then the place probably to see the first mention or the the most significant mention of what the apostles do is is in Ephesians 4. It's all over the word of God, but in Ephesians 4 is a great place to be able to look. And we've talked about the scripture many, many times in our church. It's really one of those foundational scriptures for Oceanside. But in Ephesians 4, it's talking about Jesus and what he's done. And gifts he's given to the church. So starting in verse 411, speaking of Jesus, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain unity in the faith and in the knowledge in the Son of God to mature manhood. goes on from there. So the apostolic or an apostle gift is is a gift given by Jesus to the local church. And it's interesting, there's more apostles named in the New Testament than any of these other gifts that Jesus gives. 
There's maybe four prophets mentioned in the New Testament. Probably one evangelist. Uh, maybe one teacher in the New Testament. There's no pastors that I can see mentioned. But there's nine other apostles mentioned by name. I'm talking about after the resurrection. I don't mean the original 12 guys. There's nine others at least that you can see in Scripture. There's Barnabas, Paul, Andrinus, Junius, Silas, who's also named Silvanus, Timothy, James, not the first James, but Jesus' half-brother James, Apollos, Epaphroditus. So there's so much evidence for apostolic ministry in the New Testament. You can't really even read a chapter in the book of Acts without the apostolic coming up. So what do apostles do? What is their job description? Well, let's look at the scripture and see a few things. Let's look in Acts chapter 8. As I said, it's difficult to even pick a chapter in Acts where you couldn't teach about some of the apostolic, but I want to just look at two chapters tonight. And I want to look at chapter 8 in the book of Acts. Uh, This is uh, when the persecution really started to break out in the church. The first martyr, Stephen, was martyred and Saul was standing there at the beginning of the chapter giving approval. And the church scatters to all kinds of different areas. They have to leave Jerusalem because of the persecution against the church. And one of these crazy guys, Philip, who was one of the original deacons, ends up going up into Samaria, uh, into the northern parts of the northern regions, kind of the the religious half-breed, sort of half-Jew, half a lot of other stuff. And revival breaks out in Samaria. And all kinds of crazy stuff is going on, and people are getting saved, and there's miracles, and all amazing stuff happening. There's this sketchy guy, Simon, that shows up that's kind of an ex-sorcerer or kind of wants to get on the bandwagon. We're not sure. We see this in verse 9, sort of what, who that guy was. But what I want you to see is to like, take a look in verse 14. In the midst of this revival, verse 14 says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, one of the original twelve, of course, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When they laid their hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. So one of the first things that apostles do is, when you see throughout Scripture, is apostles establish, they lay foundations, they pour gas on new works of God. That's what the apostolic does. Uh, they're, they're master builders in a way. They come into, it's a God-given gift, a gift given by Jesus. Not all of us can do it. They walk into a situation and they see what needs, the foundations that need to be established, the things that need to be built, the things that need to be broken down to establish a strong and enduring ministry. So they come in where God is working and they be able to put banks to a river is another way to say that. So it's like this construction trailer out here. You know, the construction company who's doing all this stuff behind us real quickly, they're paying some big kahuna, whoever the head guy is. His job is to watch over everything that's happened to make sure stuff is getting built in a way that's according to plan that will stand the test of time. That's a good picture of what the apostolic does in the spiritual realm in new churches and in new works and in new, in new things that God is doing. Uh, they're, they're master builders. Matter of fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I lay a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. So apostles lay foundations and establish new works. 
this evening I want to give you specific illustrations of how that's working in the life of Oceanside. I don't want to just be general tonight, I want to be specific. I want to tell you about Extreme Life Church in Warrnambool, Australia. Some of our team have actually been there to, to this church. Uh, it's led by Paul and Nicole Collinson. They've actually been here uh, in Nanaimo. Mike and Debs uh, have been there probably three times already, and there's a fourth time coming up. Uh, and their lead people have also come here. So there's this ongoing relationship between this church. And over the years, they've watched that church grow. They've encouraged that church. They've come in and be able to, to help them put in good foundations. So that church is really a powering church. Not just because of Mike and Debs. Other apostolic team members and other people are speaking into that church. But together, the apostolic has had a significant real impact on the life of that church in Warrnambool, Australia. I have no idea where Warrnambool is, but some people know they were there at our church. So they establish and lay foundations and new works. Look at verse 20 and 23. So this sketchy guy, Simon, shows up. He sees them praying for people and receiving the Holy Spirit. He's like, wow, that's pretty cool. How about if I just write you a check and you could give me that ability and I could do that too? Well, not so much. Peter in verse 20 says to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You've neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see you are full of gall and of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. One of the other things that apostles do is they identify and protect the church from harmful people and harmful influences. This is a really key ministry of what the apostolic does. They have an ability, again, it's a, it's a God-given, specialized ability, if you want to call that, where they can walk into a church and say, hey, you know what, something is not right, and here's what's not right, or there's a person that's sowing discord into the church, and maybe the leadership of the church doesn't even see that. But their job is to protect the church from those kinds of people and from those kinds of influences. I'll give you a, a specific illustration of that. Dean and I planted a church in Wetaskiwin a number of years ago called LifeGate Church. And we were just a struggling new church. And when you're church planting, anybody who's a warm body, you're glad to have them come. You know? You're just like, wow, it's so cool. You know? And particularly somebody with some moxie and some leadership ability, like, yeah, you, know, you, could, you could like be an elder, right? So, but the thing about church planting is for the first couple of years, it attracts all the fruits and nuts. I mean, it's just everybody wants to come to a church plant and kind of, you know, make it in their own image, sort of. And so it's a challenge as a church planter to get this thing going in one direction because everybody's got their own agendas and their own, own, own direction. So we were in that place in church planting. And a man named Jim Lamont, who's an, an elderly man now, a part of the apostolic team of New Covenant Ministries, came all the way up from California to the backwater of, of Alberta. And he just met with us. And he just said, you know, this guy right now who's starting to take leadership and wanting to be preeminent in the church, he's trouble. You've got to be very, very careful with him. And sure enough, that weekend we had kind of a family church meeting and this guy tried to kind of take over and lead us into some very difficult directions. And Jim stood up very lovingly and very squarely and squared off with this guy and said, you are not right in this situation. This is not your responsibility to do that. And the man got all huffy and left and it was probably one of the best things that happened for that new church work. Now, I don't know where he ended up. I hope he ended up in a good place and in a, in a good church and could apply himself. But for us in that time, that man would have been poison. And I wouldn't have realized that except for the ministry of the apostolic ministry, the gift of Jesus that comes in early, especially in the early days and helps the church sort that out. So that's an important part of the ministry. Look at verse 25. We see some other things. 
So, um, verse 25 says, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, this is speaking of the apostolic guys, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So they go back and go back through a lot of the area and preach the word of God. Another component of the apostolic is that they focus on the gospel and remind churches to stay focused on Jesus. This is really key because it's easy to get sidetracked away from the message, the simple message of salvation and of Jesus, especially in North America. Man, we get all kinds of emails and offers of the latest book and the latest seminar and come and do these five easy steps and you'll be the biggest church in town. There's a whole industry. It makes me sick, but it's this whole thing that's taking place and it's easy to get sidetracked on the latest book or the latest video or the latest whatever it is in church. And we can lose sight of the gospel, the centrality of what we're here for to preach the good news of Jesus Christ And apostles help us to stay on track in that as they come through, as they have influence in local churches. Some of you know Tyrone Daniel. He leads this apostolic team we have. And I remember the first times that Tyrone started to come, I thought, oh man, this guy's coming like from all the way from Australia or from South Africa. He's the head of the apostolic team, over 60 nations and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of churches and He's going to say something so cool, it's going to be like, we just do it, and it's going to be like instant wonderfulness. Something I've never heard. I was so excited. Well, you know Tyron if you've been around this church for a while. He shows up, and he just talks about Jesus and the gospel and salvation. And you're like, well, that wasn't very exciting or innovative. But you know what? There's a wisdom to that because he brings the centrality of the gospel to the church. And that's what apostles do. In true apostles given by Jesus, they remind the church of what we're here for. And sometimes they say, hey, you know what? What you're doing is getting you sidetracked. You've got to get back to the message of what the gospel is. So apostles focus on the gospel and they remind churches to stay focused on Jesus. What else do they do? Well, let's look at Acts chapter 14. Another great... uh, chapter that's just pregnant with apostolic uh, input. Acts chapter 14, this is Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journeys, one of the latter missionary journeys, and they're going all over the place. And uh, we'll see in verse 1 to 3 in chapter 14, now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that great numbers of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord and bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. One of the things that apostles do is they open up new geographic areas of ministry. Now, this is one of the most challenging parts of an apostolic calling is God brings you to places that are not easy places. And as we look through this chapter, you see Paul and Barnabas paying the price in terms of stonings and beatings and getting run out of town and, you know, lowered in baskets through the wall at night to not lose your life and having to go to a different town. They paid the price because they were the forerunners bringing the gospel into these towns that had never heard of the gospel. And there was a lot of resistance. And it's a challenging thing as an apostle, but God gives them a special grace for opening up new areas of ministry and new kinds of works. And it's difficult. 20 years ago, when Oceanside started, it was a great challenge. Oceanside was the first NCMI church in Canada to be planted here. And we sort of take it for granted now, but it was very, very strange. To, to do this model 20 years ago in Nanaimo, everybody thought, you, you know, this is never going to work. Um, and one of the things that was so great was a man named Dudley Daniel 
came, he actually headed up the original team that started in the early 80s in Africa. He came about every six months to Oceanside and just spoke truth into the life of the church, encouraged Mike and Deb, helped sort out things, lay foundations, and just was such a huge input into the life of our church. And after two or three years, things were established. He said, you don't need me to come anymore. And, you know, he went on to other areas. But apostles break into new areas and new geographic areas of ministry. They plant new churches and they parent orphan churches. Let me give you a, just a very practical example of this. Uh, Paul and Katie are also now have just come on the apostolic team. So we have two couples in our church that are traveling and doing apostolic ministry. Mike and Debs and now Paul and Katie McMunn as well. They've been doing that already for a while. It's just they've been recognized now officially sort of in that role. But... Paul and Katie got an invitation from a church in Penticton called New Beginnings Church. This is led by Brendan and Judith Ferrer. They've been here. Some of you have met them. They were here for the equip. Um, they got a call to help with a work in Cremios, Caramios, B.C. I have no idea where that is. But it's outside of the area. Caramios, B.C. That was a real struggling church. It's a small community. They were just maybe about to sh- shut the doors. And Paul and Katie just came out with the input of some of the other apostolic team, Mike and Debs and some other people in, in B.C., began to send teams out from New Beginnings in Penticton, and this church has seen revival. They've gotten things straightened around. They've gone from 20 up to about 60 now, and they're starting to really start to see a difference in the community. That's what the apostolic does. It comes in and be able to help those new areas and help those struggling churches, and it's a significant gift from God. Look at verse 21 and 22. In this chapter. So they finished this whole ministry, and this is actually a circuit of churches they were going through. And then the summary in verse 21 says, And when they preached the gospel to that city, they made many disciples and returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through them many tribulations they must enter the kingdom of God. So one of the things that apostles do, and you'll see this in all the time in the book of Acts, they go and they work in the new areas, the teams and Paul and some of the other teams, and then they come back through the churches that were new churches and encourage them and check in and, and, and make sure things are going well and, and build them up. So apostles strengthen and encourage existing churches. They have what's called a translocal ministry. What that means is they don't just involved in one local church, but they're involved in multiple local churches. That's one of the characteristics of an apostolic calling from Jesus. They strengthen and encourage other churches in the work. Let me give you a good illustration of this. The Bridge Church for the Nations, which is in Pickering, Ontario. Uh, it's a fairly new church plant. Mark and Bridget Elwood lead that church. We, they've been here. Some of you know them. Uh, Mike and Debs have been there th- at least three times, uh, and that leadership has come to our church here. Now, over the time, They've just consistently spoken into the life of that church, encouraged them, helped them to have ideas from God and bring correction and, and bring encouragement, not just Mike and Debs, but other apostolic team leaders. And that church is really becoming an amazing church in Pickering. God is doing some really great things, partly because of the apostolic ministry that we sent out from this place to Pickering. I was talking to Mike about this, and Mike said it's kind of like grandparents, kind of like grandparents who don't live where their grandkids are. As parents, you don't really see your children growing up. You don't notice it, right? Yeah, you got to buy some pants to get short once in a while or something like that. But grandparents, when they come in, maybe they're only able to come every six months or whatever, and they see the grandkids, they're like, whoa, you're so big, whoa, you can feed yourself, whoa, you can go to the bathroom, whatever, you know. As a parent, grandparents, we're shocked because we see the changes in the grandkids. 
I think the apostolic is a little bit like that in the local churches. When you're right there up against the coal face and you're leading a local church, you don't see the changes necessarily. But when the apostolic periodically comes through, particularly if they have a track record with you and they've been there multiple times, they can say, do you see how amazing what God is doing? Do you remember when your youth group was just struggling with a couple of kids and now it's powering at 40 or 50 kids? That's what the apostolic does is to encourage and bring perspective for those local church leaders which can get lost in the forest sometimes. It's a significant part of the ministry of the apostolic. Now look at verse 23. We see another big one here. One that we don't often like to talk about. Verse 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they planted these churches, and they came back, and as leaders were starting to become established, they recognized elders, and they set, the apostolic set the elders into those local churches. You see this throughout the book of Acts. Matter of fact, Timothy and Titus, Paul says to Titus, appoint elders, set in elders, to, and make things straight in some of the churches in Crete. So there was a number of different apostolic people doing this. So where do elders come from? In most churches that I've been part of, it's like we have a vote, or, you know, oh, wow, we need an elder, and this guy's a banker. He's probably good at something like that, you know. And we twist somebody's arm, and, okay, well, it's only a two-year term, you know. And that's kind of how we go about getting elders. I don't see that anywhere in the Word of God. Although I lived in churches and ministered in churches for much of my life that was like that. What I see in the Word of God is apostles set in elders in local churches. Not out of the blue. They're people that they know, the church knows. Matter of fact, they're already eldering in the church. It's just a recognition and an anointing that comes when an apostle recognizes an elder in the church. We had that happen just recently with Wes, just recently put in. Ty was here and, and prayed and recognized that. Now, it's not something a church goes, what? Where did that come from? No. We should all go, duh. Yeah, it's about time because we already see them doing that. It's not something the apostle comes up. But it's a supernatural gift that God gives in the apostolic ministry where I don't know how it works. I'm, I don't have an apostolic ministry, but it's like a neon sign over their head, elder or something like that, you know, future elder. But apostolic people can see that and they can encourage and help people to, to move and to see that ministry develop in the church. So that's where we get apostles. And we don't like talking about that. It's like, you know, when your six-year-old kid asks you, Daddy, where do babies come from? You know, well, <laughs> you know, uh, we'll go ask your mother, kind of. You know, we don't want to talk about where apostles, where elders come from in the church. It's so clear in the Word of God. They come from a recognition from the local church, but they're put in by the apostolic. So that's a key ministry. And then 26 to 28. Let's look at the end of the chapter. So they've gone through this whole circuit, planted churches, come back through those churches, establish eldership, encourage the churches. And then we see in verse 26, uh, we'll start in 25. And they had spoken the word in Perga. They went down to Italia. They came there and sailed to Antioch. That's where this whole thing started. Antioch was the church that sent them out in the first place. It's sort of on the curve of the Mediterranean north of where Jerusalem is. And they had been commended by the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So here's one thing about the apostles. A true apostolic ministry is that they're grounded in a local church and they're accountable to a larger team. One of the things that's gone wrong with apostles in general, kind of in Christian culture, is 
apostles kind of had this free agent. I do whatever I want. I'm the top of the food chain. Don't you disagree with me? I come in and make pronouncements for your church. And, you know, if you disagree with me, you have some kind of Jezebel thing. Or I don't know what all that is. But, you know, it's kind of this hierarchical thing. No, in the word of God, we don't see that at all. Paul and Barnabas and this team are sent out from Antioch. They do all this amazing, crazy ministry. God opens up all these churches and, and they come back and they report to the church. It's an accountability function. Here's what we've been up to. Here's what we've been doing with the resources. Here's what God's been doing. And what's especially neat to me is they stay in the local church. They, they minister in the local church. They step in probably as elders and just continue to do the work, teaching, preaching, discipling, caring for the sick, you know, the stuff that elders do in a local church. But what I want you to see is there's an accountability built into the true apostolic. They're not lone rangers or free agents. They're connected into a local church and they're part of a bigger group that they're accountable to. In our church, we call that New Covenant Ministries International. It's, it's an apostolic group. As a matter of fact, it's interesting because Mike Graves and Paul McMunn are in L.A. Tomorrow morning, uh, apostolic team meeting meets for North America. And the leaders around Canada, America, and the States are praying for this continent, praying for the churches, getting training, becoming accountable, talking about what God's doing, you know, discussing stuff, praying for each other. That's accountability. That's true apostolic accountability that's taking place. And then there's an equip that follows that in the latter part of the week down in Ontario, California. So, so we're really seeing that. So what I want you to see tonight is these principles in the first century are just the same in the 21st century. Even though so much has changed, it's still God's design for the church. And that it's okay. We can get away from the freak out factor of a apostolic, you know, oh, that's just so weird, church. We can't throw that out because it's in the Word of God. We just have to get back to the reality of how God has set up apostolic ministry. And we start to see the blessing of what apostolic ministry is when we see it done God's way, like everything else in the Word of God. It's an amazing, amazing ministry. So the outward-focused church sends out their very best people. Their most experienced people. Now this is weird at Oceanside because people come and say, well, you mean you're like lead pastor? He's like gone for like months at a time? Yeah. Mike's going to be gone to New Zealand all of August. He's going to be in traveling in uh, Australia all of October and even into November. Now that's crazy talk for most churches. Most churches hire the guy. He preaches from the pulpit 50 weeks a year and we maybe give him two Sundays off. But you know he's the guy. But you know what? We send out our very most experienced and our most gifted. And so we're developing a team. God is bringing a team. Mike and Debs have built up a team of leaders and elders and deacons in this church so that they can travel, having that ministry, making a difference in churches, and they don't have to be here holding our hand all the time. And this is a different paradigm. It's a different way of looking at things, and it stresses people out. You mean, you know, I can't call the head guy at 2 o'clock in the morning and he comes down to emerge? Well, you might, and Mike Debs do a lot of that, but they may well be traveling, and there's other people on the team that, that help in that shepherding role from connect group leaders to deacons and elders as well. So it's a very different way of looking at church. It's an outward focus. It's not about me, me, my, my. I want the best for my thing. Actually, I want to send the best out to make a difference in the nations around me and in the world. You see the difference? And it's a different approach. There's a couple other things, that, a couple other factors which we'll save for another time, um, but of fingerprints of the, of the outward-looking church. But here's what I want us to see sort of in conclusion is this. 
don't see this church as weird in the sense that, oh, wow, this is such a bummer because these great resources are not available to us all the time. I want to be able to start to see the outward-focused church as a privileged church, a blessed church, that we're involved to say, God, how cool is it that we're able to release resources, people resources, into churches? You know who wrote that last worship song we did, the the new one? BJ wrote that. How cool is that to have leaders and teams? We've got three amazing worship teams and leaders that have come through. Mature worship leaders. Are those all for us? Is it just so we can have like 16 teams of incredible worship? No. It's a blessing for us, but God is beginning to use that and has for a number of years to encourage other churches. So BJ is going to go out. He's going to be down in LA. He's leaving tomorrow morning. He's going to be helping to lead the equip. But he and Mike are going to a church, and I promise you he's going to be encouraging the worship teams and the musicians and and training into them some of the things we've learned here. That's an outward-focused church. It's a church that realizes that all the resources, money, time, people, space, anything like that, those are things that are for us to share with the world. That's why God's given. They're not all for us. So we don't own a big fancy building. I mean, it's normal to buy a $10 million building, you know, and have your own building and use it for two hours on a Sunday morning and it sits vacant. That's normal North American church thinking. It's not very strategic kingdom thinking. I think it's way better to help out the Christian school, which is what we're doing as they build this new facility. We're throwing, you know, for us, a pretty sizable commitment, not throwing, but putting into the pot some resources to help the Christian school as they build this new building. It's going to allow us to have an 800-seat auditorium within about a year, okay? Now, that's a different way of thinking. But it seems to me like a very strategic way of using resources. Because the Christian school uses it all during the week. We get to use it on Sundays. And a bunch of other groups use it. And the resources that are freed up from not having to buy a $10 million building get used for other things. For outreach, it's an outward-focused approach. And that's really part of the DNA of this church from the very beginning. But it is a struggle to maintain that. Because it's a counter-cultural approach to, to doing church. That it's not all about me. But it's a privilege. Um, I think we have to admit that this church does not exist to meet our needs solely. It comes out in real practical ways, you know. If you've been around for this church for a while and this is part of the family, don't park. Uh, You know, particularly on Sunday morning, don't park in the main parking lot here. Unless you have mobility issues or little kids, go, go park in the gravel and go in the hinterlands. Make space for people that are new. That kind of attitude. Make sacrifices for other people. This transition to the new building is going to be a challenge. I'm not kidding you. In the next year, it gets crazy days. We've got to set up all this stuff, and this gets torn down, and it's going to be pretty hectic, and we're going to need teams of people to help. And people can say, wow, that's such a drag. Couldn't we just have a nice building with the chairs that sit there all day long and, and janitor dusts them all through the week? Well, yeah, we could probably, but it's really not an outward focus in our opinion. So, yeah, this is going to be a challenge, and it's going to be worth it. In a year from now, we're going to be in this amazing space and have the room that we need. Um, But we're partnering with other things that God is doing in the kingdom. That's an outward-focused church. It's a church that sees the kingdom of God as more important than my own little needs and my own little thing. But it takes grace, and it takes patience, and it takes realizing why we've done it. And why we're continuing to do it. And why God has called us to that. Um, yeah, this is a weird church. <laughs> but weird in a good way. And we just want to, you know, I don't know if you want to get a bumper sticker, keep Oceanside weird. But I want to keep doing that, you know. Uh, and it's an amazing blessing and part of who we are. And we want to see that more. We're grateful for where we've been. 
We're grateful for what we are, but there's much, much more of this understanding of an outward-focused church for us as a church. I just invite you, let's just stand together as we close tonight. I just want to pray. I'm going to pray for the team that are going down, that are in and down in L.A. Lord, thank you for Mike and Paul. Thank you for Paul and um, this whole new opening for, for them and for having two couples now that are going to be traveling apostolic and for Katie, a blessing on her. And Lord, I thank you for them and I pray for an amazing outpouring of, for this team that we've sent out for BJ as he goes down in the morning, Lord. Lord, these are our best and our most experienced. Lord, I pray you make a huge difference in the, in the L.A. area, in everybody they talk to and all the churches they connect with in this next week. We thank you for the privilege of being a sending church, Lord. And Lord, we just pray for grace to be even more like that, Lord. Pray that we would see the vision and the amazing beauty of the pearl, Lord, that the price would seem small compared to what it really looks like to be an outward-focused church. Jesus, we admit we can't do any of this on our own. We need you. Holy Spirit, you're the one that allows us to make these changes, but we're asking you for more, for greater grace and greater patience and greater releasing of the resources and the things you give us, Lord. Thank you for this, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord.